0: China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Zhang Changdong, professor of political science at Peking University. Today, we'll be discussing his recent book, Governing and Ruling, The Political Logic of Taxation in China, which was recently published by the University of Michigan Press. Changdong, thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, Judy. Thank you, it's a great pleasure.
0: So as I ask every guest, I wonder if you can first tell us a bit about your background. I'm curious, where are you from and how did you decide, or why did you decide to become a political scientist?
1: So I was born and raised in uh, Zhejiang Province. Actually, like in uh, in in a village in uh, middle Zhejiang, and I went to Beijing for college at the end of 1990s. And at that time, uh, of course, China was reforming its planned economy and. building up its um, market economy. I majored in economics at that time, but later on, I realized that the market was emerging at that time, but uh, uh, we can still see the state, the government, or the politics played a very important roles. Uh, at that time, there was a, a kind of like a, a slogan that uh, if you have a problem, go to the market, don't go to the mayor. Right, so it's in Chinese it's uh zhang. Right. So the market is more important than the mayor. Uh but in reality, obviously uh the mayor or maybe the uh party secretary uh played an important role. So when I went to the national library very frequently to read different uh, disciplines, uh the books from different disciplines, and I found political science is kind of like very, very interesting to me. So I went to uh, graduate school to get my uh, master degree, majoring in political science. I spent three years in graduate school, and my advisor told me, okay, you are kind of like an academic guy, so get your PhD.
0: <laughs>
1: but before that, I went to, uh, I worked in a official think tank for one and a half year. And I did some policy research and I realized that, okay, I'm more interested in academic uh, academics rather than in this like policy analysis. So I applied to the PhD programs in the United States and I went to University of Washington at Seattle. And there, like I was, trained to be a political scientist. After I graduated, I went back to China. Uh, I briefly taught in Shanghai Jiao Tong University for one year, and then I uh, went back to uh, Peking University and restarted my career there.
0: So today we're going to discuss this really fantastic book that you've written, uh, An Exploration of China's tax system, but through the lens of political science. And before we get into it, I wonder if you can first tell us what motivated you to write the book. And also, as you mentioned in the introduction to the book, you're, you're exploring this aspect of China's taxation system through the lens of the literature on resilience and Communist Party resilience. So I wonder if you can also tell us where this argument fits into the literature um, or where there were gaps in the literature on resilience that you thought the the issue of taxation would be an important response to?
1: Actually, I started uh, my PhD dissertation on taxation issues, but at that time, my theoretical focus was a little different. So I was more focused on more regional government performances. So there are like variations of regional government performances in China. Some counties they uh, did very good, and why some other counties are highly corrupted and the economic performance was bad, and so on. So when I finished my dissertation, I was not very satisfied with the theoretical framework because there are so many literature on this. Government-business relationship, this uh, regional uh, government performance, and so on. So I thought about, okay, I need to reframe my dissertation uh, if I want to publish it as a book. And then I kind of like started to uh, read this authoritarian resilience literature. Uh, Actually, uh, I got this idea, uh, from. Uh, professor Mary Gallagher, who's a professor in University of Michigan, uh, she went to uh, Peking University and uh, gave a lecture on uh, actually uh, her second book at that time. Like she was working on her second book, and I thought, okay, this is a very good theoretical framework that I could in- uh, engage. And uh, uh, I mean, at that time, uh, I think it was the year of two thousand thirteen. So at that time, the literature of authoritarian resilience was just emerging, kind of like taking, uh, taking place of this uh, democratization literature. So I thought, OK, so I study Chinese politics, and there is no way I can make kind of like theoretical contribution to democratization, because obviously China has not democratized it yet. But in terms of authoritarian resilience, China maybe is the single best case. So I read most of the literature on authoritarian resilience, and I figured out, okay, so so scholars actually use different kinds of institutions. For example, people use the party, the legislature, election, social welfare policies, and so on, try to explain why some authoritarian regimes are more resilient than others. And at that time, there were also some critics on this kind of uh, explanation. So for me, I think, okay, uh, maybe taxation could be a very important uh, institution, and it was neglected by most scholars. Uh, so I put taxation and authoritarian resilience together and uh, tried to provide a kind of like a new explanation for uh, authoritarian resilience. And uh, of course, I take China and uh, the Chinese Communist Party as my uh, case to explore the mechanisms uh, between taxation and authoritarian resilience another uh, uh, kind of like critique for uh, institution no explanation for authoritarian resilience at that time was uh, people were using the old style institutionalism to explain authoritarian resilience uh, and for me I thought okay I can bring some like new ideas of institutional theories to explain that so that's that's why I try to kind of like uh, indulgenize institutional change within this uh, authoritarian resilience topic.
0: You know, Changdong, maybe now is a good time to just ask you very briefly for the high-level argument that the book is making. I was going to ask that later, but I wonder if now is a good moment to just say in a few minutes, what is the core argument the book makes? The
1: core argument is that First, taxation is a very important data institution that uh, matters for all types of regimes, uh, regardless of democrat- democracy or authoritarian. And the second, if taxation helps to achieve authoritarian resilience, there are some two important dilemmas that it needed to resolve. And I call them as a gross dilemma and uh, a representation dilemma. For the gross dilemma, so it means a state uh, cannot achieve rapid economic growth and rapid tax revenue growth at the same time, right? So, and for the representation dilemma, it means if the state extracts huge amounts of tax revenue from the society, then the society may be react uh, by demanding more representation. So this is as the slogan of taxation uh, through representation argues. Uh, but uh, for authoritarian regimes, both dilemmas should be like, resolved. Otherwise, uh, rising, rapidly rising tax revenue may lead to authoritarian breakdown rather than uh, authoritarian resilience. So in my book, I try to ex- examine how the Chinese taxation institu- uh, institution is designed uh, and it can somehow resolve both dilemmas at the same time at least in the short term, not necessarily in the long term. Can
0: you tell us what is the structure of that solution?
1: Yes. So the, so the current uh, Chinese taxation institution, according to my understanding, has three important characteristics. So first, uh, it's kind of like highly decentralized in terms of the central local physical relationship. Therefore, it has somehow empowered the local governments uh, with the very strong incentives to develop a regional economy. And it also generated these uh, regional competitions. Uh, therefore, somehow it disciplined the, the local government from acting too predatory. And the second, the Chinese taxation institution is what I call the, a half-tax state, So, which means the Chinese government, especially uh, its local government, are highly dependent on non-tax revenues. Uh, these non-tax revenues, including most importantly, the, the land transfer fee, which could uh, compose about uh, one half to two thirds of uh, local governments' re- physical revenue in some times. Also, it, relied, it relies very heavily on state-owned enterprises uh, for about like, 30% of tax revenue. It also relies very, very heavily on indirect taxes rather than direct taxes. So the Chinese taxation system is very different from the United States. Most of the taxes uh, are hidden rather than visible. So therefore, I call it a, a half-tax state. And the third characteristic is that uh, uh, in terms of tax administration. So the tax administration in China, especially tax administration for business taxes, of business related taxes, which means business taxes and value added taxes and so on, is highly under institutionalized. Basically, the Chinese government sets very high nominal tax rates, plus, there are many different kinds of like non tax uh, burden, button, physical burdens, like different kinds of fees, uh, fines, and so on. So, for most Chinese enterprises, especially the private ones, if they pay the taxes according to uh, this nominal tax rate, none of them, or I mean most of them, could not make any kind of profit. So therefore, it's very rampant in terms of tax evasion. And this makes them very, very vulnerable in front of the authoritarian state. It's kind of like they can demand for they can bargain with the local government uh, with economic terms, but they cannot bargaining with the party state for their political demands. So that's uh, that's uh, how uh, how this uh, taxation institution. I mean, in the short term, could resolve the two dilemmas, but I mean in the long term, uh, there will be serious challenge.
0: I wanted to quote from page 71 and 73 of the book to talk about the second element of the half tax state which is the indirect taxes you quote from one of the founding thinkers of legalism Guanzi who I'm going to quote here proposed to the king of Qi quote people are happy when they receive something people are angry when they were they are deprived a smart king knows this human nature his gifts are visible and his extractions are invisible therefore as people love him. Some taxes are visible while others are invisible. A smart king abolishes the visible and increases the invisible. So people are happy to follow him. And now I want to quote, this is your own words. China's reliance on indirect taxes has minimized the crying out of its citizens because they do not recognize that the feathers in the state's hands are their own. And the feathers, I should say to readers is a reference to another tax, another quote by a French economist about plucking feathers from the hen. But anyway, so the, the CCP, you say, is a good student of Guanza. The half-tax state requires minimal direct compliance by citizens and therefore improves the state's extractive capacity. Thus, it alleviates the representation dilemma. Citizens, are, are because they're either reliance on fees, as you say, through land transfers or many indirect taxes, the citizen's perception of the extractive uh, level of the state is, is diminished. Correct?
1: Yes, exactly.
0: I want to circle back around to this later to talk about some of the challenges this presents. But now that we've got the main argument of the book out, I wonder if we can go back in time to the period after 1949. And and in that, just to give a historic context... In that period between let's say 1949 and 1978, how did Beijing approach taxation? And I'm curious specifically, you know, how did the structure of the planned economy and how did elements of ideology shape how Beijing constructed its tax system?
1: So in the book, I uh, didn't like uh, go to many details for the history part, but I, I'm working with uh, Professor Lu Xiaobo at uh, University of Texas at Austin. So we are going to write a shorter book uh, on China's taxation system. And I think we will spend like uh, more on the, uh, the history part. So the short answer is that uh, so when the Communist Party established it, uh, its power, and then there, actually there was a big debate about what kind of the taxation policies should be taken and in the early 1950s. Uh, mostly it was between uh, Mao Zedong and uh, uh, Bo Yibo. So for some, uh, for some uh, leaders, I mean, especially like, like uh, Chen Yuan and Bo Yibo, they, kind, they tried to have this kind of like equal treatment between the state-owned enterprises and the private enterprises in terms of their tax tech, tech burdens. Because for them, it's very important to encourage the private sector to develop his, uh, uh, the economy. But for Mao Zedong, he wanted to have a more, much more heavier uh, tax burden for the private sector, therefore to support the uh, recently be, uh, established public sector. So there was uh, there was a debate, and Mao Zedong, of course, won the debate. So, the, so they put a very heavy tax burden on the private sectors, and uh, the Obviously, the, later on, uh, with uh, all of this like uh, public-private partnership with this 公私合营, the, the private sectors actually uh, kind of most of them, I mean, if not all of them, actually uh, kind of like was merged into public ownership. After that, taxation actually was regarded as a very effective tour of class struggle. So it's a class struggle between the capitalists and uh, the working class. And then after the establishment of the planned economy and the public ownership, some people thought, okay, now we had all of these public ownerships and there's no need for taxation, right? It's public ownership. So everything belongs to the state. So therefore, uh, there's no necessarily for taxation. But I mean, so there's this kind of like ideological debate, but still uh, there was was taxation. And the taxation kind of like uh, the tax revenue composed about uh, like 40 to 50 percent of National fiscal revenue at that time. But during the Cultural Revolution, the taxation builder, like other government bureaus, they were kind of like uh, under a very heavy attack. And uh, I mean, in some regions, they were kind of even abolished. But still, there was taxation, and uh, it played, I mean, a very important role, especially in uh, collecting fiscal revenue for the government. I think this in this case, China's planned economy was different from Soviet Union and Eastern European countries because I think the main reason was the level of industrialization in China uh, was at its very early stage compared to uh, Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. So therefore, the Chinese government still relied on uh, tax revenue, but uh, only like 40 to 50% of the fiscal revenue came from taxes. Yeah, so that's uh, what happened. Uh, and actually, like I say, there were several runs of tax reform uh, before 1980, uh, 1978. Uh, both in terms of the central local physical relationship and uh, the uh, categories of the taxes, So there were several rounds of reform. So so I think in the new book, we will like, give out all of the details.
0: Recognizing that, you know, your future work will go into those details. I, I wonder if I can still ask a little bit more history. And this is now moving to the post-78 period. There were two significant tax reforms, one in 1984 and then a, a very important effort in in 1994. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the logic and the political logic behind uh, those two uh, tax reforms, and then I have a follow-up question I want to ask about
1: 1994. Okay, so both the tax reform in 1984 and 1994 are very, very important. And there are some similarities as well as differences. So uh, to my understanding, the 1984 reform could be characterized as both decentralization and uh, deconcentration. So in Chinese, both decentralization and deconcentration means uh, fengchuan, right? Uh, For decentralization, it's more about uh, the relationship between the central and the local governments. And for deconcentration, it's more about the relationship between the government and uh, the enterprises, And of course, we can also use uh, deconcentration to uh, refer to the relationship between the state and the society. But for tax reform, it's more about uh, uh, to separate the uh, state-owned enterprises from the state, from the government. Okay, so at that time, uh, for the national leaders, they tried to reform the economy without knowing uh, exactly what they uh, needed to do. So there were lots of... uh, Pilot reforms, right? So they, some, some of the reforms took place in Hebei province and Sichuan province. Uh, at that time, under the planned economy, the state-owned enterprises, they didn't pay taxes. Mostly, they, they submit uh, their profit to the government. But then uh, the problem is the state-owned enterprises, they had no motivation to work hard under the planned economy. Uh, and they had this very serious uh, soft budgetary constraint problem. So for the reformers, uh, and especially Zhao Ziyang, who was the party secretary in Sichuan Province, and later on uh, he was promoted to uh, the as the premier and then the general party secretary. So in Sichuan, what Zhao Ziyang did was this profit for tax reform, and uh, so the state-owned enterprises they needed what they, uh, and especially for the uh, these pilot enterprises, they didn't need to submit their profit to the government. They needed to pay taxes to the government in state. So it's kind of like they delegate many power to these state-owned enterprises to motivate them to work hard and to make more profits. Therefore, they could transform the state enterprises into real enterprises, I mean, like the enterprises in the United States, rather than a work unit or a downway under the planned economy. Uh, so th- I think that, that was the, the, the most important rationale. And in terms of the central local physical relationship at that time, uh, for the 1984 physical reform, it was mostly about uh, introducing the contracting system. So the contracting system means the central government signed contracts with the provinces. And the provinces will sign this fiscal contract with lower level, like prefecture-level governments. So, for example, the Sichuan province signed a contract with uh, the central government. And it basically said, okay, so this year we will pay uh, this amount of tax revenue to the central government. And the next year, it will, there will be a 5% increase. And the Sichuan province can uh, could keep the rest of uh, tax revenue at the local level instead of submitting all of them to the central. So this kind of like uh, motivated the local governments to work very, very hard to develop its regional economy. So that was, uh, to my understanding, uh, was the key elements of 1984 uh, physical reform. So this reform, on the one hand, was very, very successive successive in terms of promoting economic growth. And in the rural areas, they promoted the development of collective enterprises known as township and village enterprises. But this reform also generated many negative uh, consequences. So one very important t- negative consequences actually was the declining of tax revenue, both in terms of the ratio of tax revenue of GDP and uh, the central government's tax, re- uh, tax revenue of the national tax revenue. So in Chinese, these are called as uh, the decrease or decline of two ratios. Uh, in other words, the central government realized that it has no fiscal revenue, even to pay salaries, not to mention that they could uh, fund many uh, investment projects. Uh, so there's a very important, uh, there's a very urgent need for recent recentralizing uh, the fiscal power to the central government. Uh, and there's another important motivation, which was actually the 1984 tax reform aimed to stipulate the enterprises from the government and to set this hard budgetary constraint to the enterprises. But uh, it failed to achieve this this goal. The local government actually had very, very close uh, linkage with enterprises under this contracting system. Okay, so for the uh, 1994 tax reform, first, it uh, it needed to decentralize the fiscal power. And secondly, it was part of a very comprehensive economic reform program, which was to build a so-called socialist market economy. So the taxation institution actually uh, laid laid the foundation for building up a socialist market economy. So for the 1994 tax share reform, the most important thing was to re-centralize. Uh, Therefore, it it kind of like I said, uh, different tax categories, so some, some tax cut categories are central tax revenue, some of them are local tax revenue, and some of them are shared tax revenue. And uh, therefore, the reform was very effective in improving both uh, the uh, national tax share of GDP and uh, the central government share of national tax revenue. So it was very effective in uh, improving the taxation capacity and uh, to decentralize the taxation power
0: dong I want to sort of ask a quick follow-up question on the 94 tax reform, which actually gets into the larger question I wanted to ask to you during this discussion, which is political explanations for where Beijing is willing to pursue tax reform, and then explanations for where Beijing is hesitant to address institutional tax reform. I think as a first question, I would imagine as Beijing was unveiling or, or contemplating its 1994 tax reform plan, because it's requiring a distribution of resources from the local levels up to the center, there's going to be a fair number of local level officials who are not supportive of the tax plan. Thinking about today, one of the arguments you hear is that the reason Beijing does not pursue property tax reform, for example, is that there's a lot of vested interests who will be harmed by it. And therefore, you know, Beijing chooses not to pursue it. I'm curious, First of all, in the case of 1994, what gave Beijing the confidence and authority to move forward with that tax reform, given that it, it would have angered or frustrated a, a large number of, of local interests?
1: Okay, so I think at that time, uh, the central government had no other uh, choice. So thanks to like all of these like uh, memories written by uh, the uh, people who actually uh, was part of the reform, including like the uh, the the then Minister of Finance and the Vice Minister of Finance, so they had all of these like stories about what happened at their time, and I think also Zhu Longji uh, in his uh, collected works, he, he also had some like uh, some of these uh, what's really happening at that time. Okay, so in the in early nineteen nineties. The central government, especially premier and the vice premiers, they found that the central government had no money, right? So they needed to. What they needed to do was to borrow money from the local government. I mean, of course, it's not really borrow, right? So they asked, for example, Shanghai, that okay, so we need this amount of money, and we need to borrow it from you. And then Shanghai knows that that okay, so. When you get the money, you're not going to return, uh, pay me back. So the central government actually was borrowing huge amount of these taxes from the rich uh, provinces. Uh, so when Zhu Longji like uh, be- became a member of the uh, Standing Committee of the Politburo. Uh, he talked to uh, Jiang Zemin and like about, okay, so we needed to decentralize the physical power. And then Jiang Zemin uh, went to Deng Xiaoping and Chen Yuan and got their support that there is an urgent need for uh, physical reform, especially physical decentralization. So with the support of the party elders, Jiang Zemin had some meetings with the province leaders. And in Chinese, it's called like Wu uh, Xu uh, So it's kind of like meetings without very detailed agenda. Right? So what Jiang Zemin did actually was to- was uh, to, uh, to tell the province leaders that, okay, politically this is very important and uh, we need your cooperation and your support. And uh, Zhu Rongji and his colleagues actually was, uh, had all- needed to implement all of this uh, bargaining and negotiation uh, with uh, the provincial leaders. And uh, I think they were very smart. Uh, because they didn't ask all of the province leaders to uh, go to Beijing and had a meeting and talk to them. Actually, they went to different provinces and play this divide and lure game, right? So they went to uh, Shanghai and then like had the Province leaders uh, from East China, uh, and and then they bargained with each province like one by one. And of course, they had many many faced many many difficulties and challenges. And I I think the the most serious challenge was from Guangdong and uh, Zhu Rongji. Actually, it ended up that Zhu Rongji. Uh, went to Guangdong by himself with the support of the Ministry of Finance. So the challenge was that so uh, Zhu Wenji talked to the Guangdong province party secretary and the party secretary asked him, we totally support the central government's decision to decentralize. But if we pay this amount of tax to the central government, then it it will be impossible for us to catch up with Taiwan and Singapore. As Deng Xiaoping had asked us to do in the coming like five or 10 years. So this is kind of like really a very serious uh, political challenge. And then uh, Zhu Rongji was kind of like uh, very, very concerned about that. And then like he asked uh, people from the Ministry of Finance to recalculate like, OK, so if the tax rate is this and then uh, 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 when Guangdong could catch up with uh with Taiwan. And so they did all of the calculations overnight. And then in the early morning, the Minister of Finance came to Zhu and said, no problem. Uh, even if we tax Guangdong that much, they still can catch up with Taiwan in ten years. So Deng Xiaoping will not be disappointed. So there are lots of this kind of like bargaining, and the Party Secretary like told uh, Zhu Rongji that, okay, so we are not. It's not like an even bargaining. Like right? you are a member of the Standing Committee of the Politburo, and I'm just a member of the Politburo. How could I like uh, bargain with you? And then Zhu Rongji's answer was, okay, so he said, okay, so the Minister of Finance, he's just a member of the Central Committee. And how could he him dare to bargain with a Polly member? member? Right? So it's kind of like there's lots of... So they are using the, the political power to bargain. But at the same time, they also kind of like make lots of concessions to the uh, local demands. So, for example, like they... What Zhu what Rongji tried to do is, okay, so... Uh, the best line would be the average of the last three years, and then the Guangdong uh, government said, "No, we are not going to take the average of the last three years. We are going to take the year of nineteen ninety three as the best line, and at that time, of course, they overcollected the tax revenue to make the best line much higher so there were there were lots of bargaining, but uh, i mean china kind of like is a unitary state and the Communist Party had all of this uh, political power, especially this nomenclature power to over the province leaders. Uh, And so at the same time, they also kind of like make concessions to uh, the local demands. And I think there's one also very important element uh, that explains for this rapid change. Uh, I mean, political science, we call this as unintended consequence But at that time, both the central government and the local governments, they didn't realize that uh, uh, the tax share reform would improve the central government fiscal power that rapidly and weaken the local government uh, tax power that much. So they were based on the long assumption. But then uh, because the economy grew so rapidly, therefore, the central government was to improve its uh, share of tax revenue very, very quickly. So that's kind of like, uh, yes, there is local vested interests. And the central government, uh, on the one hand, they use the political power to, to recentralize. But at the same time, they also respect these vested interests. So this, there's like lots of compromises.
0: Then getting us to the present day, and one of the consistent puzzles for me is given the power and centralized control that the, the Xi Jinping administration has, I'm curious why you think there has not been another attempt at substantial institutionalized tax reform, given all of the challenges and fiscal challenges Beijing is confronting right now. You've seen limited efforts on, let's say, a, a trial property tax program. This emerged again in the wake of you know the announcement of the Common Prosperity Program. There was a short-lived property tax trial program, and, and it was pulled back. Can you explain for me why, given all the authority Beijing has tax reform seems so hard so i, I remember
1: that uh, uh, minister loziwei i mean who retired about 5 years ago uh, so he mentioned that uh, the one important uh, reason was uh, this vested interest, uh, and another was the uh, technological ca- capacity. But now I think with the assistance of this very powerful IT technology and this big data, I think that the technology capacity is not a big challenge now. So it's m- more about uh, uh, vested interest. And but for me, I would uh, add uh, another very important factor, uh, which is related to my argument in the book with the half tech, uh, half tech state, and also I mean the paragraph you kind of like read by Guanzi and by others. Uh, so the Chinese government now relies very, very heavily on indirect taxes. The direct taxes composes less than one third of the national tax revenue. And for the individual income tax, it composes uh, about 7% of the national tax revenue. So it's compared to the United States, it's very, very low. And so the central government... Uh, has been talking about uh, property taxes for more than 10 years. And then, like, uh, it never implemented it. So it had some pilots uh, in Chongqing and uh, Shanghai. But it's kind of like very marginal. And uh, some researchers find that uh, it was kind of like uh, because there was a political competition between uh, Bo Xilai and uh, Yu Zhengsheng at that time that actually imple- uh, initiated the property taxes in Chongqing and Shanghai. Without this kind of political uh, competition, uh, no uh, top national leaders or politicians they have the strong incentive to implement the property taxes. And one reason. One very important reason uh, I would emphasize is that uh, the cost of taxation is not only economically, but also politically. So in the book, I argued that uh, because of the most of the tax burdens are hidden, are invisible. So therefore, the citizens don't perceive their tax burden as very, very high. If there is a property tax imposed, then more people, especially the middle class people, they will perceive very, very heavy tax burden. And then they may try to make some voices politically. So I'm working with Professor Bruce Dixon at George Washington University. We just published a paper on how this half tax state reduce Chinese urban citizens' tax perception. And we are working on another paper on like why uh, this heightened tax revenue kind of like explain for Chinese urban uh, citizens for government support or regime support. So on the one hand, the Chinese government using this huge amount of fiscal revenue could improve its public expenditure and social improve social welfare programs to gain people's support. At the same time, people don't realize that they are paying for the public. Uh, goods they received, so this is exactly what Guanzi argued more than 2,000 years ago. But if you introduce these property taxes and other direct taxes, then citizens will realize that, okay, so we are paying for what we get. And we are paying too much, and we are getting too less. So we are working on a paper on on this, and uh, it hasn't been submitted yet. But so far, we find that uh, the the current physical system helps to reduce uh, people's tax burden and to improve their government trust. Partially because uh, of most uh, they not per- they they don't perceive that they are paying a lot for the public goods they are receiving. So I, I think that's a, a ma- one of the major concerns that uh, Beijing. Kind of like avoid all these tax reforms, especially to have more direct taxes, uh, which actually the central government uh, set a reform target many years ago to, to increase the share of direct taxes and decrease the share of indirect taxes. But it never happened so far.
0: That feels like a much more satisfying answer than just saying vested interests, which is usually the answer I get. And it does make sense. I was thinking about percentage of the Chinese population that pays income tax is something like thirteen, fourteen percent. And even lower. Is it lower? Okay. And that doesn't make sense if you're thinking about a revenue maximization. That's not necessarily China's main goal as it navigates governing China and a balance between sufficient extraction of resources to pay for governance, but also balancing some of these other challenges around representation. And of course, the license plate here in Washington, D.C. says no taxation without representation, uh, which is probably what Beijing is, is a little bit worried about. Yes, I
1: think so. So, uh, because to uh, increase taxes uh, means uh, there's both economic cost and uh, political cost. So, I think that uh, for the Chinese government, it's trying to kind of like uh, make a balance between tax revenue increase, uh, GDP growth, and also uh, people's demand for representation.
0: Well, Changdong, I want to thank you. This was such a um such a rich discussion and and I just found the book um ordinarily I would not think a book on taxation would be <laughs> would be interesting but this was not a book about taxation this is a book about how the communist party governs um how it balances various interests and so I think anyone who wants to understand this critical you know puzzle of maintenance of power. um, And as you said at the beginning, trying to understand resilience of the Communist Party, uh, this is just such an interesting book. What we didn't get to talk about today for time reasons was that a lot of your book is local level case studies. So I think also for folks who are interested in just seeing what the lived taxation experience is for local officials, for state enterprise interactions, for how market participants engage with local level officials and how the taxation system shapes that. Changzong's book is just a, is an excellent resource. So thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to your, your future work and we'll be on the lookout for that paper with Bruce Dixon uh, when it comes out. So thank you. Thank you, Judy.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts.